Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We are in James chapter 5, and we're going to be uh, kind of, it's our next to last sermon in this series that we have called Authentic Faith. Caleb did a great job last week talking through uh, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, and talking really about suffering and what it means to endure, what it means to remain faithful and steadfast, even in the midst of your difficulties. And uh, even as we talked about that, in some ways, the message was, was kind of a passive one of be patient. This week, we kind of shift, or James shifts, and he gives us more of an active thing. It says, how do we be patient? We do it by prayer. And so we are to, to seek the Lord and be active in prayer. And as Caleb talked about centering ourselves on Christ, it's similar, I think, to really where James goes here in talking about prayer today. Do you know James' nickname was Camel Knees, uh, which is kind of a weird nickname. Like, it's probably not something you ever set out and wanted to, uh, to be called and probably not something you would have imagined for yourself. But uh, it really came from the idea of the fact that he prayed so much and spent so much time on his knees that his knees were calloused like a camel's knees. That he, um, in fact, uh, a historian, Eusebius, um, said his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. I mean, how would you like to be so faithful in prayer that a historian calls you and nicknames you something based out of your life of prayer? How would, you, how would you like to be so known for that, that when people thought of your life, that's the trait that stood out in their minds about who you are? I mean, I think it's important for us as we lean into this idea of prayer. Prayer is, prayer is the fuel of the spiritual life. Prayer is the pregame meal of the race of the spiritual life that we are on. And so prayer is the thing that gives us sustenance and direction. It also happens to be one of the hardest things that we do. Prayer is one of the most difficult things we do, but here's what I realize and what I see in the scriptures and what I see in my own life is we will never grow and we will never mature as believers apart from prayer. It's impossible to mature as a follower of Jesus apart from prayer. What we need to realize is that what we are in prayer defines what we are as a follower of Jesus. What you are in prayer defines what you are as a follower of Jesus. Prayer is and it's, it's worship and friendship and struggle kind of all wrapped together. And it's difficult for us to get our minds around and difficult for us to do, but there's nothing more important in our lives than prayer. And so as we jump in today, um, here's what I realized. If, uh, preachers know if you wanna make someone feel guilty, talk about evangelism or money or prayer because everyone feels like they fall short. Like I don't know anyone that, that just says, and I am every bit the prayer I wanna be that I've arrived in this arena to such a degree that I feel confident in my prayer life at all times. I think we all, uh, we, we all fall short of where we wanna be. You know, one of the things I realize in my own personal life is there's times in my prayer life where it feels like I put the sails up and the winds just blow through them and it's just, I'm carried along in prayer. And then there's other times where I feel like I've been drifting at sea with no breeze for a long time. And there's just an ebb and a flow to prayer life. And in each of those seasons, we learn something. I think God uses it, uses it to teach us something about prayer. And so let's get into James chapter five today and see what we can learn from old camel knees about prayer. 
Uh, James chapter five, and we're gonna start in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, this is James chapter five and the word that God has given us for today. And you can notice pretty easily that uh, the topic here, it's obvious he's talking about prayer, right? Uh, notice what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It's kind of, it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. Is anyone on, the, on kind of in the depths and in the valley right now? Then pray. Is anyone on the top of the mountain? then you should praise God. There's a connection there between prayer and praise, but it's kind of saying wherever you are in life, you have an invitation to talk to God about whatever your circumstances are. Whatever situation you find yourself in, there's an invitation for you to come and to speak with the Lord. Notice he says is anyone. In, in the Greek, anyone means anyone. So that, that'd be you. Like any of us can fit into this. I know you all are invited into this. And so anyone at all, whether you're in a good day or in a bad day, you're invited into this. And in fact, anyone at any time in any circumstances is invited to talk to God in prayer. Do you realize the privilege you have that the God of the universe turns his ear towards you and listens and invites you? And James says, if it, no matter what your circumstances are, any one of us can come to him and pray in prayer. So when should you not be in prayer? I think what he's saying is you can, you can stop praying whenever you stop having good days and stop having bad days, whenever you stop struggling with sin, whenever you stop having ups and downs, whenever you stop having worries or fears, whenever you stop being overconfident and prideful, whenever God stops loving you, you can stop praying. You should pray at all times, the scriptures say. Scriptures tell us uh, that we should pray without ceasing that there's never a time we don't need to seek the Lord in prayer. And there's never a time that privilege is not ours where we can't come to him and pray. Now, verse 14 gives us another example of a time when we should pray. You notice it says, is anyone among you sick? And so this is another circumstance that he gives and he's gonna highlight this one. Now, being sick here could mean to be weak. It could be kind of physical or mental or spiritual. It can be kind of a big, broad breadth of things. Uh, it could mean that you're frail, that you're aging. It, it actually may lean in this text, it may actually lean to someone who is kind of on their deathbed. They're on their, in their last days. In fact, it seems to be that they're immobilized and they're unable even to come to the gathering to be prayed for because they have to call for the leaders of the church to come to them in order to be prayed for. And so there seems to be uh, this kind of dire need of someone that's sick and they're really asking for help in the middle of their struggle. Now, here's where this text can sometimes get a little bit tricky. In fact, these two verses, this, this whole passage deals with prayer. Uh, I was laughing with Chris this week, but we could teach a whole series out of these few, these few verses on the nature of prayer by itself. But it's interesting that I think, and I think sadly, two verses in this section get all the press. And they really are these two verses, verses 15 and 16. And one of the reasons why I think it's misused sometimes is, I mean, there's a strong, straightforward statement 
In verse 15, it says, um, in the prayer of faith, will save the one who is sick. That's not vague. That's very direct and it's very blunt. And what he's saying is um, that, that the prayer of faith actually can save someone who is sick. And so there's a, there, there, there's a straightforward claim there. Now, what's interesting in this passage is there's no other parallel passages for this one in the scriptures. And so it's kind of a verse that seems to stand out. It, it's a unique one that's, that's there for us. And one of the things, the questions I think we have to ask there, and if you've ever lost a loved one, if you've ever prayed and labored over someone who struggled with an illness, if you've ever seen someone on their deathbed and begged God to break into that and not seen it come to fruition, this verse can make you doubt. This verse can give you pause. And it can make you question and say, does this verse, is he saying that, that we should always be able to achieve perfect healing for someone simply by prayer? And that's a question that comes to mind, isn't it? It's a question that's very real to life, one we wrestle with. Let me give you a couple of principles of interpretation. When you come to the scriptures, one of the things we need to understand is it, it's, it's a dangerous thing to take one verse and build an entire theology on one verse. It's a dangerous thing to take one single uh, concept or one thing that, that, that is not correlated in many places and make and build a life around that one verse. And so one of the things we have to see in scripture is that we wanna take the plain and obvious verses and use those to explain the rare or, or more confusing verses. We wanna take the things that are commonly said throughout all the scriptures and use those to help us understand the verses like this that maybe aren't repeated over and over and help us understand some of the tensions that we feel. And so as we begin to look at this, what do we, do we, do we understand this to say that healing should always happen? Well, no, if we look in scripture, we know there's many places in the scriptures where, uh, where people get sick and where people are, are not healed. In fact, godly people, uh, people that are, that are admired and lifted up as models for us as, of the faith, oftentimes struggle with illness. In fact, you see, uh, for, just give me a couple of examples. 2 Timothy 4.20 uh, says, I, I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. And Paul is saying, I, I left one of my brothers and I left him there because he was ill. Uh, no, I mean, surely Paul is a man of faith. Surely Paul is someone who would have prayed for this man to be healed. And yet he had to leave his helper behind because he was unable to bring about healing in that case. Philippians 2 says, for he has been longing for you all and is distressed because, he, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And so there's another case where someone, uh, they'd heard of this long battle of illness that someone needed to be delivered from. Galatians 4, uh, Paul writes again, you know, it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me. So Paul, who wrote the majority of our New Testament, said, I had to stay there and preach to you because I was too ill to go where I wanted to go and to, to follow through on the plans that I had. Second Corinthians 12, Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh three times. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul had something in him that was so troubling that he was begging and pleading and he went to the Lord multiple times and God said, no, I'm not gonna heal you, but my grace is gonna be enough to carry you through. So trust me in your weakness. So there's this tension that we feel between wanting to seek healing and wanting to see something break through, but also knowing that we don't always get what we want. You see other examples of this in scripture. I think sometimes if we take them on surface, uh, it, it can be a little bit misleading. So we have to think a little more deeply on this. Think of Jesus when he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Have any of you 
use a little extra for Christmas, a little extra money. Like, if you ask for that, I'm not convinced that that's gonna show up on your doorstep, right? I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at, which is why he says, if you ask anything in my name, meaning something that's under the guidance and the direction of Jesus. Another one, again, he says, truly I see to you if two or three on earth agree, or two of you on earth agree about anything that they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So you take that one verse and any of you wanna see cancer rid on this planet? Just eradicated? Any of you wanna see it? So, so there's more than two of us that wanna see that. How many of us are confident that cancer has been eradicated in the last 30 seconds? I don't think it is, but I, I know one day it will be. I know one day it will be gone, but that day doesn't appear to be now. Although if the Lord wills, he could eradicate it right now in this instant. And so we come and we trust him, but we have to come humbly. R.C. Sproul deals with it this way. He says, to expect there, and by there he means uh, sicknesses or illnesses or difficulties, to expect their absolute elimination before the appointed time is to grasp the promises of God prematurely. See, God has promised the cancer will be eradicated, but he hasn't promised me that that will happen this afternoon. And so I trust that he is going to deal with it and that he will deal a final blow to it one day, but I can't demand that that day is today because I'm not in control of that. James 4 gave us a good hint at this. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago where he talks about kind of being presumptuous and saying, I'm gonna do this or I'm gonna do that. And then he says, no, you shouldn't say that. You should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. James 4, 15. So we need some humility in our approach. But you know, this is why the Bible is so glorious. And so oftentimes we run to Revelation. We go to Revelation 21 and we remember that one day there will be a day where there is no more sorrow, where there is no more pain, where there, is no more, where there are no more tears, where the Lord will dwell with us as a friend and where we will live in a world that Jesus, where he's made all things new in the new heavens and new earth and everything will be righted and all evil will be undone. And we long for that day and we call for that day and we ask Jesus to come and bring that day because we desire for it to be a reality. But until that day, man, we live in a world that there's still some sorrow and there's still some pain and there's still some difficulty. So why do I go into all this? So here's why. Because as a pastor, I see the struggles that so many of us have with these areas. And I want, to avoid, I want us to avoid two extremes. And so I want to encourage you not to run to either of these two extremes. First is praying in an overconfident way. See, sometimes uh, there's a false confidence that we pray and we're actually claiming more than we can ensure is going to happen. And so we're kind of demanding something to happen. And ultimately, part of what that does is it puts an unreasonable pressure on the person who's sick when we come to them and pray in a certain way, demanding that something's gonna happen. The prayer of faith doesn't mean that we have complete confidence in our prayer to do the work of, he of the healing. In fact, this text says only the Lord can raise a person up. It's not us who can raise someone up, it's the Lord who raises someone up. And so what we have to understand is this prayer of faith that it's talking about isn't something that's just worked up or mustered up or emotioned up. I don't think that's really a word, but it's nothing that we can just stir up on our own and say, if I feel it deeply and strongly and passionately enough, God has to answer it. That's not what the scriptures teach us. And so there's a danger in that because what I've seen in my own experiences, when I, when I work with people that deal with chronic illness, when I deal with people that, maybe have had a, a terminal diagnosis 
and they're living under the burden and the weight of this thing that's never seeming to go away. And we come to them and say, if you prayed enough, God would take it away. Or if you prayed in the right way, God would take it away. Or if you believed enough, God would take it away. And what it does is it just puts this pressure on their shoulders that crushes them. And so it's not an act of love, I think, towards the person. It's not an act of compassion. So what we have to do, I think, is we have to be humble and not pray for something that we can't make happen because it's ultimately in the Lord's hands. And so um, that's one of the extremes. We don't wanna pray with an overconfidence in the ability of our prayers or the depth of our prayers. The other thing we wanna do, the other extreme I want us to avoid is I don't want us to pray in an insecure way. So that's the other end. If we can pray overconfidently, we can also move way over here and pray in an insecure way. You know what an insecure prayer is? It's one that you doubt that God really cares. You doubt that God really loves you. You doubt that God can really do anything. You doubt that God will really act. And so when we do that, we're unsure of God's love and we're unsure that God desires our good. And so we're afraid to ask for something. Maybe, maybe we're afraid of the, so afraid of the supernatural that we're afraid to just ask God to heal the person we love. Maybe we're afraid to just to step out in faith and ask God to do something that we wanna see him do. Maybe we're scared of making a mistake Maybe we're scared of saying things the wrong way and so we become timid. We're scared of making a theological error or making a mistake and so we don't just cry out to the Lord and beg him to do something good in our friend's life or our family member's life. And so I wanna encourage you, don't pray insecure prayers. Also don't pray overconfident prayers. There's a balance in there somewhere where we come and we say, you know, I can't control it, but I do am confident that God loves us and cares for us. And so holding those two things in tension and I wanna encourage you to come boldly to the throne of grace. You know, there's a, a verse in scripture that talks about our freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace. And what I'd want you to, what I wanna encourage you is, and don't miss out on the invitation to boldly come to the throne of grace. Just remember that you're not the one on the throne. Like you've got an invitation. Jesus made a way for you to come straight to the gates of heaven and to, to rattle the cages and to ask the Lord to do something good. And you can beg him, you can, you can entreat him, you can ask, you can ask boldly, you can ask confidently that he loves you, but just remember that ultimately it's in God's hands. And if he wills, then you, we will see the results we desire to see. So our prayers should be characterized by humble boldness. We should be dependent but, and yet confident. Confident in God's love for us. That's why I think in James, uh, here in this, in this passage, you notice he also says that we're to pray how? He says we're to pray in the name of Jesus. What is, what is that really about? See, Jesus is personal. What you understand is Jesus is not a force. He's not some nebulous thing out there. He's not some mystical thing that's floating in the universe. Jesus is personal. Jesus was human. Jesus came and he lived perf divinity, uh, perfect divinity, perfect humanity together. And he walked on this, uh, on this earth and showed us what it looked like to trust the Father in total dependence and, and in perfect faith. And so he modeled for us what it is we're called to do. But not only that, he also made a way for us by dying on a cross and then by being resurrected and leaving an empty tomb. And so when we come in the name of Jesus, what you're saying is the resurrection power that Jesus had to conquer sin and death is at your side. That that same power, when you're praying that power, you're praying for the, the resurrection power of Jesus to, be, to accompany these prayers. You know, it's interesting, Jesus 
praying in Jesus' name. I think there's some ways we, we tend to misuse that as well. Uh, in the ways I see this, it's not a magic incantation. It's not like it's just a tagline you put at the end of your prayers. It's not a campaign slogan. It's not empty words. It's not just kind of, if I say this this way, God has to do something. And like, it's, not, it's not just a, a magic spell that you're, that you're spewing out in the name of Jesus. It's not sending positive feelings and thoughts in a general direction. Um, man, that's one of those, that in, in our day, you hear more and more. And just being frank, like, uh, you wanna hear me rant? Like, I get on a soapbox and see me just get excited. This whole deal of someone's in a dire situation and you go, man, I'm sending positive vibes your way. I'm like, dude, I don't care about your vibes. You're not that powerful. Give me someone that can do something. Give me someone that can make a difference in the middle of the situation. And what we know as Christians is that person's name is Jesus. And I appreciate the, the well-meaning of all that. And I appreciate good thoughts. I'd rather have good thoughts than bad thoughts about me. But I'd rather even more than that, have someone that can actually do something about this. And I was listening not long ago to an interview with uh, honestly, probably my favorite modern writer, Cormac McCarthy, he's written several uh, novels and um, was, he was asked about a character in the book who appears to pray. And then the, the interviewer asked him a question and said, uh, do you pray? Then she wrote a, a story, a character, and the a character in your story seems to pray, do you also pray? And he said, and this is what he had to say. He said, I think it's a good idea sometimes but I don't think it particularly matters where, whether or not you have a clear idea whom you're praying to. So good idea to pray, doesn't really matter who you're praying to. What that told me was that you can be incredibly intelligent and incredibly talented and also confused and misguided at the same time. It's like shooting an arrow out into nowhere and then running up to it and drawing a circle around it and saying, hey, I hit a bullseye right? Like you're not aiming at anything. You're going to hit it every time. And so there's nothing here. It's what Francis Schaeffer called faith in faith. It's not faith in God. It's faith in your effort to believe something. It's faith that resides totally within you and saying, if I feel it, then it's got to be true. But what faith ultimately is, is faith is attaching your heart to something else. And your prayers are only as powerful as the something else that they're attached to. And so if they're attached to Jesus, and those prayers are, are incredibly powerful. If they're aimed at nothing, then, maybe, then they're going to go nowhere. Friends, what I want you to know, if maybe you're not a believer here today, maybe you've never truly trusted Christ. I want you to know Jesus came to earth to show us the way to God and the way is by grace through faith in him. He is the way. And this is why prayer is so important. Prayer is, prayer is, a, is, is a confession of our weakness. Prayer is a confession that we can't save ourselves. Prayer is a confession or acknowledgement that we can't do everything on our own. And Christianity at its nature is the confession that we need a savior, that we need a rescuer, that we need someone outside of us to come in and save us. And ultimately it's for forgiveness of sins, but it's also for our healing and our forever life. Now, there's an interesting thing in this verse, and man, I don't have time to go into all this. Uh, we could, we could, like I said, we could spend weeks here. It's interesting, he talks about applying oil, and I'm not gonna get it out. Some churches still do it, some don't. But there's an idea here that, that, that kind of this idea of applying oil to someone or anointing them with oil could be a ritual, could be kind of medicinal, that it's actually something in that day that they use as more medicine. It also could be something that's used symbolically just to acknowledge, and this is one that, that bears the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a, a sense in which you would anoint them with oil to, to do that. Here's what stood out to me this week, though, as I looked at that. 
The anointing of oil is focusing on something that is done to you, not something you do to yourself. See, for me to, to allow someone to come and anoint me with oil is for me to be a receptacle, for me to be a receiver, for me to, to, to open my hands and say, I mean, for someone to put their hands on your head is a, is a vulnerable thing, right? And there's a sense here in which you're inviting someone. It says you're to call for them to come and to pray for you, call for them to come and to anoint you with oil. And you're inviting them into a vulnerable space that is your own. You notice here uh, a couple other things. James, there for the very first time um, here in this, in this section, he says, let him call for the leaders of the church. Let them pray over him. It's the first time James mentions the church. He's talking about a community of faith. What kind of community does James envision the church to be? A church that's intimately involved with one another, that's engaged in the kind of rough stuff of life, that's invited into the messes of life, that's invited into kind of the, some of the, the difficulties, that it's not something that you pull away from. I mean, what does our society do to someone who's sick? Now let's quarantine those bad boys, right? Like let's put them over here and wall them off so none of us can get sick. We, we isolate people. What James says is that call and have them come to you. There's a community. Now, if you're a germaphobe, that may kind of freak you out. But I don't think it's going there. But I think what he's saying is that we're called to live in community with one another and to be connected to one another in real relationships. Now, let's be honest. That's not a very American idea, right? To admit that you're vulnerable, to admit that you have needs, to admit that you are too weak to manage all of things on your own. Um, dudes, especially, like this is hard for us. Guys, we don't, we don't like to talk. Well, that's not true. We do like to talk. We just want to talk about work, sports, music, movies, um, things like that, stock market. Like those are the, the, the way our conversations, the things our conversations revolve around. It's harder for us to talk about the deep stuff of our, of our hearts, of our struggles, of our emotions, of what's going on in, internally. Uh, the things that, that we wrestle with. It feels safer for us to talk about what we do than who we are, which is why most of our conversations start off with what? How's work? I mean, that's nine times out of 10, that's how you start a conversation. It's either how's work or how was your weekend, which is like, how was your escape from work, right? So, but all the way, it's, it's usually revolving around work, guys. We struggle with this. Now, this, uh, in this day and age, it's a little bit dicey for me to be, to, to step into stereotypical terms here. So I wanna tread really lightly here. Uh, but ladies, maybe on the other side, um, you know, ladies tend to talk um, more freely. L most ladies start off with a conversation that goes, that instead of how's work, it's more like, how are you? Which is focused more on what their being is than their doing is. And so it's easier for ladies typically to talk about their feelings and different aspects of their lives. But you know what, what I think is interesting about this is that that's not enough here either. That, that you may not go far enough either because it may be easy to commiserate and talk about all the difficulty of your circumstances, but to take those circumstances and actually go to the Lord and not just kind of pull your frustrations about your circumstances together, um, but to actually take those and run to the Lord with them is a whole different thing. Friends, do you have people in your life that you regularly, deeply share, life, share about your life and what's going on with? Do you have people that you can go to and say, man, I'm struggling in this area or, and I stubbed my toe over here and I'm really wrestling with this situation or, and I've got myself in a bind and I'm not sure what to do. And people that, do you have people that you can go to and you can ask for prayer? People that you can go to and you can confess your struggles and ask for help. 
And James wants us to lean in, I think even a little more here. You notice he talks about confessing your sins. That's mutual transparency. It's going and trusting someone else with your weakness, which man, there's no more vulnerable place than that. Inviting others into your space, into your pain, into your struggles, into your failures, confessing. And what I want to encourage you in this is, and we need to practice and be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word on this point. We need to confess. Now, let me make a clarification. Not to everyone, because that would be idiocy. Because there are a lot of people in the world that you should not trust your failures to because they may not be trustworthy. So I'm not saying you should go out and air your dirty laundry to everyone. That would just be foolishness. So we need to confess not to everyone, but to someone. Do you have someone? There's one or two people that, that are walking with you at a, at a deep enough level of life that they know what's going on in your heart and they know what's going on on the inside. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in talking about sin being the only way, the only way to defeat darkness is to bring it out into the light. And Bonhoeffer in his brilliant little book, Life Together said this, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you. Man, I love that. That's the invitation of the gospel. You come as the sinner you are and come to the God who loves you that will give you grace every single time. That's the freedom that the gospel gives us to practice this thing of confession. Can I let you in on a little secret? Every time you do this, it will feel risky. It doesn't matter how often you've done it. It doesn't matter how often you've done it with this individual. Every time you come and you share weakness with a brother or sister, it's going to feel risky to you. But it's also one of the most rewarding things you can ever do. You know, I've got seven or eight guys in my life that they know to the best of my ability, everything. That they know they can ask me everything. That they know they can call my wife and ask her everything. And they've got free entry into that kind of relationship with us. And it's, it's, the, it's the deepest level of trust that I've got with a, with a circle of friends. And can I tell you, it's also one of the most life-giving things that I experience here on this planet. It's absolutely one of the best things that I experience. You know what, guys? You need to know that you're not crazy. You need to know that you're not the only one. You need to know that you're not the only guy that feels the way you feel sometimes. You're not the only guy that falls down the way that you fall down sometimes. You're not the only guy that struggles with the things that you struggle sometimes. And the only way you're ever gonna experience that is if you've got a circle of friends that you can go to and say, man, here's where I am. And they go, me too. This is my struggle too. Do you have friends that can say, tell me about the hardest time in your marriage? That can say to you, and how are things with your kids? Or they can ask you, does your work own you right now? Or are you handling that and keeping it in perspective? They can ask you, and what temptations are you feeling right now that would distract you from Jesus? And how is your walk with Jesus going right now? Do you have friends that, and they, they ask you the questions like that? I mean, we need them. We all need them. And we need to invite people into those spaces in our lives. Why would we do this? You notice what he says? Confess your sins and pray for one another so that you may be healed. What he's saying is you can't experience spiritual health and spiritual growth apart from these practices. That if you're going to mature and grow into a healthier place spiritually, 
This is going to be something that you have to practice. It's something you have to do. And you notice that he says that it's so that you all may be healed. It's not just individual. So that we may be healed. So that y'all, if I'm in Oklahoma, may be healed, right? So that that we do these things so that y'all may be healed and we may grow up spiritually. That's the the picture that James wants us to have and what he wants us to see in this. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna cut this short so that we can pray. Um, Let me just say this. The rest of the passage, he talks about Elijah. You notice what he says about Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a man who had feelings we have, that we have, had experiences we have, who had struggles like we have. Elijah was, uh, prayer is not just for superstars. Prayer is for all of us. Elijah was a man just like us. And yet his prayer was a powerful thing. It says he came and he stopped the rains and he brought the rains. Elijah prayed fervently. Elijah prayed expectantly. Elijah prayed repeatedly. And he came to the Lord and he asked and said that he knelt down and he asked the Lord to do something. And as he did, he he asked the Lord and said, God, would you send the rains? And and he sent his servant expecting to see rain and said, go and tell me, do you see see any rain? And he came back and said, I don't see anything. He prayed again, go and check and see if there's rains. And Elijah came back and his servant came back and said, nope, no rains. He prayed again. And he said, go and see if there's rain. He came back and said, nope, no rain. Seven times, Elijah prayed and prayed and prayed. And finally, the last guy comes back in and says, you know, there's a little cloud way off in the distance. And Elijah said, you better get your umbrella because it's about to pour. And his prayer made a difference. And that's, the, that's what James wants us to see, is that prayer can actually change things. Prayer really matters. So friends, how's your prayer life? And there's nothing that can shape your heart like, like your prayers. A story was told um, that I heard a while back about a, uh, a spiritual leader who was observing a stonemason at work on a building. And as that stonemason was down on his knees and was carving and working a, an angel out of some stone on some stonework, uh, the, the spiritual leader began to watch and just observe this, this guy and the work that he was doing and how he was shaping something out of stone. And as he did, he said, he kind of began to reflect on his own life and he said, I'm just gonna watch this a little longer. And he sat down and began to watch this, um, this work that was taking place. And as he, as he um, understood what it was that this guy was doing, he saw how this guy with such craftsmanship and such workmanship was able to shape the stone and make it, look, make it into something beautiful. And finally, he said, I would give everything if I could shape the hearts the way that you shape that stone. And the stonemaker turned to him and said, if you worked like me, you could, meaning on my knees. If you were on your knees working like I do, then you could shape the hearts of the people around you. Friends, do we believe that God in his sovereign plan ordained prayer as the means by which he would work? James says it is. So let's be people who pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we come in prayer asking that you would do good in our hearts, that you would do good in our, in our lives, that you would do good in our church, that you would do good in our city. Father, would you make us a people of prayer by your grace, for your glory and for our good. I pray it in Christ's name, amen.